welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, Frank Musi, research assistant here at CAD, will be interviewing Natalie Alvarado-Renner, citizen security lead specialist at the Inter-American Development Bank, Daniel Ortega, director of impact evaluation and policy learning at CAF, the Development Bank of Latin America, and Marcela Escobari, visiting fellow at Brookings Institution and former assistant administrator at USAID's Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean. They have just participated on the fourth and final session of our security and development seminars, which focused on violence in security and development in Latin America. Um, Daniel, Natalie, Marcela, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. I'll just get straight to it and field some questions. Marcela, you spoke about the importance of evidence in making policies and policy interventions politically sustainable. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think my in my experience in this um, very intense and incredibly rewarding year that I just had at USAID, um, after, again, being eight years at CID and, and, and studying here at the Kennedy School, was the importance of marrying evidence and what we know work, works with development with what's politically feasible. And we talk about it. We talk about political economy. We study it. We, we, we study examples. But really, there's nothing like being there, working with government, understanding that uh, that you need to align the incentives of people in Congress, of the White House, understand the pressures that they feel in the way that, that results look for them. So to give you the specific example of when I had to try to convince the vice president who was trying to show we were on the same team. He had invested his political capital on the Central American strategy and doubled the financing of U.S. funds to the region by committing to results in migration, right? But with an approach of root causes in governance, in violence, and in um, economic opportunity. And the truth was that if the money was not spent fast enough, or we didn't show results that linked to migration, he would have, have had a hard time convincing Congress to continue to fund this. Right? Even though we all know that trying to spend faster than a government can absorb those funds can also have you know, counterproductive results. So one of the things that, um, that I had to do is first understand the link to migration. And I actually worked with um, Michael Clemens from CGD, who's done work with, with Land Pritchett here at, uh, at CID, to understand the trends in Central America. And what we saw is that really, in terms of, of, of migration, Central America and the Northern Triangle were in this tipping point where their GDP per capita was like six to $8,000 per capita, which is at the point where there starts to be an opportunity cost of migration. So if we were actually able to bring this region to be more prosperous, people would likely migrate less. The other reason that people migrate is because they're young or because they have shocks in violence or because they have financial shocks, like there's a you know, financial crisis. So that's how attacking violence and creating economic opportunity would eventually um, be able to, in Central, in Central America, reduce migration flows. But 
even though migration might not have been my, my goal as a development agency, being able to link real goals in development to those migration flows were important for him to be able to continue to support, uh, to support, to support this initiative. That's just one example. You spoke about the importance of evidence in sustaining policy and making policy politically supportable in America. What about with Latin American governments? What is the importance of evidence with having Latin American governments support particular policies? I think it's really not that different from what it would be in any other place because policy decisions are made based on ideology, uh, resource constraints, inertia from the past, interest group pressures, uh, etc. So knowledge, evidence, science has some weight, right, in this process. Uh, we just don't really know how big, a, you know, this weight is, but we have sort of the intuition that it's fairly low in general. So how do we make that bigger? How do we make that more important? I think this is a huge question for not only for Latin America, this is a relevant question for the U.S. Uh, it's a relevant question for European countries. It's a, it's, a, it's a relevant question everywhere. I think we need to increase the political cost of not doing so. So one way to do that is to uh, inform society and help society develop mechanisms to hold governments accountable to the decisions they make when they go counter to whatever the evidence is out there. Uh, that's just one example of the kind of social control mechanisms that you uh, could try to put in place. And th this means strengthening uh, uh, civil society organizations, NGOs. Uh, they will play a very important role in holding governments accountable to their decisions. Along Daniel's uh, intervention, I think one of the constraints that we have in Latin America to create some evidence to, go, to do good diagnosis of the problem as well as work on the solutions and evaluate what we uh, promote or the intervention that we're implementing is the data. We have, I would say, barriers that serves like a constraints for governments to use data. Uh, criminal data is very sensitive in the region. So they are scared of using the data because they will look bad. Also, the capabilities, we talked earlier about not having the capability to collect good data, but as well and analyze and use it in public policy. So we have to promote and we have to make more awareness about how they can be, the, the information can be very useful for them, not to criticize them, but to make their job better. Second is that we have to create also the knowledge platforms that when I see a country has resolved in solving the problems or, or some evidence that is useful for the rest of the countries, we share it quickly because as we say before, there are little evidence in Latin America about what works. So in general, I think it's a trend now of inform, uh, creating capabilities and sharing that information quickly. I think an important component of getting evidence in policymaking is also falls on us. And I think places like the Kennedy School are uniquely qualified to create that linkage and to translate. Because academia is rewarded by, you know, advancing the literature and a topic in, in sometimes in small ways and in a place that really links, you know, academia at the highest rigor with people who have been in government, 
we really need to focus on on trans uh, on creating the translation here so that these uh, evidence-based analysis can be actually easily used by policymakers and i think more of that translation needs to happen uh, and not leave it to politicians who their speed and the way that they absorb information having you know now been in government it's just not it's not designed to be able to absorb the information the way that academics write it and i think we should uh, you know places like the cid should do a lot more of that translation when we spoke earlier you said that oftentimes when the idb engages with uh, political actors in the countries Political actors know very well what their problems are. Crime is prevalent here. This type of crime is prevalent there. You know, the, the, their, their natural intuition would be to go for the effects rather than the causes, the symptoms rather than the disease. So when the IDB engages with political actors, how, do, how does it deal with that? How does it engage with politicians to get them to target the real problems and not just their symptoms? Well... Before you address a problem, you have to recognize that they have a problem. So that's, that is the first step, and that, that you want to solve it, because we have also some um, you know, uh, governments that they don't really recognize that they have a, a problem. So engaging with them is having a proper balance, uh, responding to their needs, their urgent needs, as well as creating the conditions for a long-term uh, engagement in, in, in the sector. We know that the results, you know, some takes time to, to, to see them, the, the effects. So we have to do, as, as I mentioned before, um, a combination of uh, interventions that have results in the short term, like hot post policing and some deterrence interventions, and create the, the ground for more uh, social prevention intervention that will take a little bit longer. And also, uh, I think, is that we have to get the governments to understand that uh, data is the basic, is, is the central piece of what they need to understand what happened. And because the solution is not, it's like a, it's like a, a disease. You know, if you have cancer, you know, and what type of cancer, and then the medicine for that type of cancer is not, a, you know, violence. We have to know. It's, we are talking about uh, violence in, in at home. Are we talking vi uh, guns violence? We are talking about gun. So, what type of violence are we talking? And what problem are we solving? So, understanding what type of uh, criminality they are addressing, so the solution will be like a tailor-made solution and probably more effective. In most countries, you know, most jurisdictions already have in their legal frameworks commitments to solving many of these problems. It's just that they don't follow through on what they've committed to do. And so rather than thinking of what countries need to do, we should think about how countries need to do the things that they've already committed to do. And you mentioned the importance of knowledge accumulation in institutions. What are the guiding principles so that the knowledge is relevant to the things that they're trying to do and so that there's institutional memory, so that the learning that occurs in one year can be found in the institution five or 10 or 20 years later? We have been talking about uh, security, about crime, about different strategies, above and beyond specific strategies, specific policies that we might want to think about. Our general problem of underdevelopment has to do with underprovision of basic public services. So we are, uh, and, and this is what we call a massive implementation gap. We have a massive gap between 
the kind of services that we that we want and the kinds of services that we have. So you just think about like something as basic as ensuring that people who are imprisoned remain alive. This is a basic premise on which you should be working, right? Uh, we are not able to guarantee this in Latin American countries. Most Latin American countries, this is out of the control of the people who are responsible for the prison system. And just like that, you think you can think about basic provision of public services. So we are very far from providing the basic things that we have committed ourselves as societies to provide. And uh, the point that I wanted to make is that this is also true, this is definitely true in the area of, of citizen security, and that the way that we can try to overcome this is to learn about and leave a deep knowledge footprint on the innovations that are constantly in place in order to improve the way that we deliver public services. A policymaker is often faced with the question of how to deliver something and not whether to deliver it. And so uh, these are the sort of day-to-day questions that these people are faced with have to do with these kinds of things. They are implementation questions. And so this is where we are proposing that these innovations should be, can be rigorously evaluated, many of them, so that the policymakers will not only gain relevant insight on the specific thing that, that matters to them on their, in their day-to-day basis, but also learn about learning. So just because they are involved in the process of uh, designing and implementing an evaluation or a rigorous sort of learning process around a particular intervention will show them, you know, how valuable this process is. And so there are two benefits of this, two great, great benefits. One, the learning process is very relevant to the day-to-day decision-making, so it's more likely that the knowledge outcome will be actually used, taken up and used in the decision-making process. That's one great advantage of this. And the second, much more important, is the institutional capacity uh, building effect that it has because it teaches the person in charge and people around this person about learning. And so the idea is that you will begin to build and instill a culture of learning in the public institution. Mm-hmm. And this is the way that it is, gets sustained over time. If you help build a culture of learning, you will uh, actually be uh, creating lasting capacity in the public sector. One example to add to you, to your point on the importance of learning is that aside from rigorous impact evaluations, which you can do in certain innovations and in certain cases, and with a, you know, just because you require a certain time frame and, and, and resource for it, this culture of learning and fast feedback loops is one that can be easily implemented and important when you have a lot of players working together. And uh, one of the things that, that, that we tried in the places that were most successful, particularly in Honduras, is you had a lot of players. Even inside the U.S. government, you had USAID, you had INL, people in the State Department, all who were trying to affect the same problem through different mechanisms. And one of the things that we proposed is saying, look, we're all trying to do the same thing. Let's find a couple 
metrics of success, whether it's going to be homicides or other types of crime, and then let's all experiment together, knowing that we're going to be judged on whether homicides or this type of crime come down. And that forces a collaboration that otherwise just doesn't happen naturally in all the different elements that need to work together for crime to go down. So in practice, in your work, actually, uh, with policy interventions or supporting policy interventions to improve the security situation in the various countries you work in, what have been some of the most challenging cases? Um, and they don't necessarily have to be success stories. They can be failures as well. Well, I, I can think about one. And, and when the, I remember in 2012, the president of Honduras at that time requested us to reform the police, uh, a task very, very challenging uh, given the situation of the Honduras at that time, the, the most violent country in the world, basically with a, a very uh, weak uh, police uh, institution and uh, with uh, um, a lot of uh, untrust from the population about their work and even perceived to be very corrupt. So that was a very, very, very challenging one. Something that we learned starting working with the police is that we don't reform police uh, forces from outside. We have to do it from within. So one of the things that we did is that uh, to start to identify within the organization champions that will will buy a reform, that will that understand they have to change. They have to understand they have to modernize from the recruiting, training, and other parts. So I think this is a lesson learned from working on reforming in police, is that we have to work with them so they understand it's not something that you change. They have a doctrine, they have a way of doing things. So we have to work with them and, and in the process of, 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 the channel, of, of the change. Today, we have a, uh, um, a starting in the reform of the police, a better trained uh, police officers in Honduras, um, well paid, so I think this is something that is very positive and a lesson learned for reforming. Let me add to that because I think one of my most impactful experiences was also in Honduras and seeing what is possible with, uh, with the police. I mean, some of these neighborhoods are extremely violent, have been completely co-opted by gang members where everyday life is, can cost you your life. Literally, if you cross the street at the wrong time, at the wrong place, you know, it, it, it is perceived as a, as, as, as a threat. And, and these communities are completely paralyzed and unable to prosper because while you need everything for development to work, violence can stop you from going to your business, from going to work, from going to school, and how slowly these communities could be taken back by the same members of the community. Uh, as Natalie was saying, it comes from help from the outside, but it needs to be owned internally. And the transformation of the police, the same police force that had spent 20 years pursuing the same kids, was able to go through this very thorough training to take on the perspective of what it means growing up in the streets, being an unemployed kid, being in the gangs, and uh, actually by experiencing uh, what it means to have that, that type of life, it creates empathy to the people that they're now working with. So I just want to tell you a story about one time we were working with a, a police agency of about 800 sworn officers in an uh, undisclosed country in Latin America. And we were seeking to implement a hotspots policing program. 
Uh, and so we had this very sophisticated diagnosis about the, the, the geographical distribution of crime. We spoke to the police, look, this is what the program is like, this is what you're going to do, this is where you're going to go, here's your timesheet. So it, it was all very clear, it was very, all very nicely set up. We had GPS on police patrols. And then we, when we were monitoring the delivery of police time at these hotspots, well, we realized that, you know, after a couple of weeks, compliance was, you know, not over 20%. So what that means is that we're, they were supposed to spend an hour, you know, over a 24-hour period, they were supposed to spend an hour in a specific spot, and they were, you know, they were spending 10 minutes. Uh, so this was really very low compliance. So we started to, to dig in to see what, was, what the problem was, uh, after several months of trying to sort of crack the secrets of the police institution, we, uh, through a, our attempt to do a census of police, uh, to try to measure their motivations, etc., we were able to establish that the absenteeism rate, like permanent absenteeism, was uh, about 40%. So the capacity of the police to provide the service that they had committed to was just not there. And because we did not involve the police institution from the outset, we were unable to determine this and to have a very, you know, a straight commitment, a clear, true, truthful commitment from them about what they were actually capable of doing. Of course, there are more complexities around this because, you know, why is there tolerance to <coughs> this type of, uh, this level of absenteeism? That sort of draws uh, a more, like, a deeper discussion about the institutional weakness. But uh, ultimately, the lesson here is that in order to design uh, proper policy and to create usable and effective, use, useful evidence within a particular institution, you really need to have buy-in from the institution, from the, the you know, top-level institution, the commitment from the institution, uh, to this process. And so this is the only thing that will make it useful, but also uh, lasting and, uh, and, and relevant for the future. Uh, and in this case, is just an example of by not taking some of these basic things into account from the beginning, uh, it just fell apart. Okay, uh, Daniel, Natalie, Marcela, thanks a lot. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.